Welcome everybody, good to see you. My name is Tim Harris, I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church in the cafe. All of you joining us by audio or video podcast, we love you so much, welcome. Open your Bibles, everybody, to Luke, Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. If you're following along in the live event, you'll notice uh, that that whole uh, app is now upgraded really slick, and I encourage you to do that if you've never done that. Find the version uh, Bible app and find the live event for this service, and then follow along. Also, if you have uh, children and are heading toward Easter, uh, I have linked on the live event uh, actually uh, uh, a devotional guide for you to use this week with your kids. It's, it's, it's a really nice thing. So do find that and, uh, and follow along with this. In honor of March Madness, uh, I thought I would tell you a little bit about my life as a baller. Um, yeah, some of you new folks probably don't understand uh, my, my, uh, my skills. Um, there's actually only one really short period of my life when other guys actually let me play on a basketball league with them. Uh, I was a kid. My talents emerged early, though, so, so I, I was a kid and I was playing it was a church league, which tells you probably about everything you need to know about the, the level. I remember the, the practices, early practices. We worked on, you know, dribbling and we worked on shooting. And, uh, okay, you know, I, I was into all that. Not, I really wasn't into, <laughs> into any of that. But I was still in there. I enjoyed being with, with the guys. I enjoyed being on the team. And so, uh, anyway, those practices went by as they went by. And then there was one really important practice. Nobody could miss this practice. It was actually going to be at the coach's house. And we were there at the basketball goal in his garage. And we practiced nearly all night long. And this is when I realized, man, I'm not cut out for this. Why do we need to practice all night long? It got cold. It got dark. But the thing was, the coach was wanting us to be ready for, the, for our very first game, which was going to be just, just a week from then. And we were working on plays. Now, y'all understand it. At this point, basketball goes just, you know, dribbling to shoot into to a, a really highly sophisticated strategic game. And so we had this special practice to, to learn plays. Okay, everybody else was really into it. I just couldn't get into that. I just remember being really cold, and I remember thinking, you know, this is never going to end. I was out there a lot, mostly guarding people, because I found that one of the things I could do on the basketball court was get in the way. So I would just be in, in, in people's way. Anyway, that night passed by, the big game came, the very, very first game, and it was awesome. Our team was out on the floor playing. I was on the bench drinking Gatorade by the gallon. I mean, I was liking this. This was okay. And then the coach signaled for me and told me he was putting me in as a guard to play guard, you all. Like, what's his name? Tyler Eulis? Yeah, I was just like that, just, just like that. So I started thinking, okay, guards, guards. And I remembered back, tried to remember what we were doing out there at the coach's house that night, because I remember the guards had a lot to do with that, but I wasn't paying attention. I really wasn't paying attention. So I thought, okay, I've got to be the guard. And I just had this vague recollection that the guard was the guy that brought the ball down the court. And I thought that was awesome. I really thought they looked cool doing that. So I, I was all about that. But then I remembered that, that they held up hand signals. And I thought that would be cool too. So I decided to, you know, to, to be the guard. So anyway, coach put me in. Uh, the, I got the ball and I started dribbling, y'all. I mean, and it was cool. I mean, the game stops while I dribble. 
And so I just brought that really slow. Watch this, y'all. See how I did that? Yeah, it all comes back. It all comes back. So I thought, yeah, I'm coming down the floor. Hand signal, hand signal. So I did this. Yeah. So I come in like this, right? Whatever this is. I'm coming in like this. So then all of a sudden when I cross that line, like everything just goes nuts, you know, and I'm just... People start coming at me, so I'm just like, Shh, just throw the ball away. And all of a sudden, everybody's mad at me. Whole team's yelling at me, you said play number one, play number one. I thought, who said play? I... And I thought, oh my goodness. That means something. I mean, seriously, I had no idea. That meant something. So I thought, shoot, fire. So, so anyway, I went back. I got a chance to do it one more time. And say, so, here I come, you know, and this time I'm a little more, watch it, I'm a, I'm a little more slick at it. So this time I'm thinking, okay, no, no, no fingers. So I just did this. Okay, apparently this means something too. It's coming in like this, you know, boom, boom, it, it all happens. Uh, in just a few moments, I am back on the bench. Realizing that I should have paid a little more attention at that big practice at the coach's house. You understand? Because the coach on that particular night was really trying seriously to make us ready for what would come next. Now, here's the bottom line. In, in our spiritual life, Jesus always prepares you where you are for what comes next. Jesus always prepares you where you are for what comes next. Now, in the moment, you don't always understand what it is that Jesus is trying to teach you. You hardly ever understand what he is trying to develop in your heart. You don't know because you are in this moment, and you don't necessarily know what's coming the next moment. It's like me that night at the coach's house, completely clueless about what a basketball game would be like. Do you understand? It's difficult to understand where you are, what comes next. But Jesus knows. And because Jesus knows, this is what he's always doing in your life. Always preparing you where you are for what comes next. Now, this is what makes this particular passage extremely difficult to fathom because this is the last night, literally the last few hours, maybe even the last conversation between Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus is trying to prepare them where they are for what comes next. And what comes next is his death and his separation, his bodily separation for them. And as Jesus says, when you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. He's trying to prepare them where they are for what comes next, but they don't get it. They don't get it. Luke chapter 22, verse 31 is where we'll begin. We're literally still in the upper room. We're still around the table there at the Last Supper, and Jesus has these words. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even die with you. Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Then Jesus asked him, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag, or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. 
But now Jesus said, take your money and a traveler's bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For, for the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That's enough, he said. Okay, okay back up. It's really important, really important. Verse 31, Jesus is speaking to all of the disciples. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you. So he says, Simon, he addresses Simon Peter directly, but, but, but the word that he uses there is plural. When he says you, Satan has asked to, to sift you like wheat. It's plural. So, so Satan has, has, has asked permission to, to, to get at all of the disciples. He wants them. There's a target on their backs. I think it's really, really interesting, those simple words that, that Satan has asked. Satan has asked. What exactly does that mean to say that Satan has asked? Very, very fundamentally in your life as a believer, understand that Satan can't do anything in your life without permission. Satan can't do anything in your life without permission. Now, whose permission would that be? Well, well, first off, God's permission. Very, very importantly, he's on a leash. He's on a short leash, and, and he can't do anything that God doesn't allow. Now, it's devastating to think how much freedom he has in the world, and there are an awful lot of things that Satan seems to do. So if he only does the things that God allows, does that mean that everything Satan does, God is responsible for? Well, I would go so far as to say that, that there are certain things in my life that God never intended, that God would not have allowed, but I allowed them. You see, when it comes to my life... I can let Satan in. I can open the door to him. God gives me that freedom as well. Do you understand what I'm saying? Satan needs permission to, to attack you. He needs, he needs permission to get at you. And the fact is, God would often keep a hedge around us. God would protect us much more than we are protected. The problem is we don't walk closely enough with the Lord to allow him to protect us. We step out into the fast lane with the devil, and we invite his testing. We invite temptation. We do this every single day of our lives. So understand, Satan is not a powerful enemy. The only power he has is to lie to us, but he's very, very good at it. So bottom line, Satan needs permission. He needs permission to come after us. And, and, and typically that permission comes from God. But, but in our most boneheaded moments, we ourselves will invite him on in. Did you recognize that? So Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. Let me just say this. The trials you face are only the ones God allows. Let's go there. Understand, I, I put that little parenthesis in there that you sometimes allow things God never intended. But let's just go with this. The trials you face are only the ones that, that God allows. So Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you. Jesus prays for me. Understand, Jesus knows what, what Satan is doing. And Jesus knows that this very night, Satan is coming after the disciples. So Jesus says, don't worry, I've prayed for you. Don't worry, I've prayed. Now, that sounds good. Just out of curiosity, what would you hope Jesus would be praying for you? What would you want Jesus to ask for on your behalf? I would want Jesus to say, please let him escape this temptation. 
Let this child never hit Pastor Tim. That's what I would want Jesus to pray. If he knows the devil is coming and Jesus is going to ask the Father for something on my behalf, I would say, you know, why don't you just rapture me out and drop me on the beach somewhere? Because that's what I would want. But that's not what Jesus prays. I have prayed for you. And he does not pray that the temptation won't come. He does not pray that, that, that Simon and the others will never face the trial. That's not what he prays. Instead, he prays that their faith should not fail. He simply prays that their faith should not fail. So obviously God allows this testing. God allows what's going to be a horrible night and a horrible season for the disciples. And God allows it. Why does he allow it? Very, very simply, the only reason God allows anything is, is when that thing will somehow suit his purposes. So God allows you to be tempted and tried when it suits his own purposes for your life. So if God allows you to go through a dark period, if God allows you to go through a trial, understand that trial must somehow suit his purposes for your life. So apparently his purpose for your life and mine is not simply that we're always happy. The first purpose of God for my life is not happiness. And the first purpose for my life from God's perspective is not comfort. God did not put me on this earth so that I could live a comfortable, happy life. Now, that's what we want, but that's not God's first priority for us. God has a higher purpose, and Jesus says it right here. I have pleaded in prayer for you that your faith should not fail. It is faith. It is always faith. It is your faith that God wants to strengthen. It is your faith that God wants to sustain. You may not always be happy, but if God has his way with you, you will always be growing in faith for the simple reason that it is impossible to please God without faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible, impossible to please God. So your faith is what matters. Faith is what allows you to know God, to trust God, to, to love him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So Jesus says, I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to go to prison. I'll die for you. I'm ready. Oh. See, this is my problem and your problem. We, we typically underestimate the seriousness of what Jesus is saying to us and overestimate our own abilities. I'm ready. I am so ready. It's like me, you know, ready. Jesus says, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny even knowing me. You'll deny it three times. Then notice what Jesus says next. This is the important part. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag, or an extra pair of sandals, did, did you need anything? Now, he's referring to an episode earlier in, in, in their public ministry when he sent them out. And he specifically instructed them, don't take a suitcase. Don't, don't pack extra clothes. You're not going to need them. Don't take a canteen of water. Don't, don't take it, you know, a, a, a sack of snacks. You don't need anything. You just go. You go in my spirit. You just go. 
And now Jesus calls that back to their minds and says, when you went out to preach the gospel and you did not have money, a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? And they all say, no. No, you go back in the gospel, Luke, and read that episode. They come back triumphant. They come back victorious. Because you know what happened? When they would go out preaching the good news, they were well-received. People would welcome them into their home. And once people would take them in, people would feed them. And people would make sure they had everything they needed for the next leg of the journey. They were well-received. I mean, the crowds were responding to the gospel of Jesus. They were responding to the miracles and the ministry of the disciples. I mean, it was a glorious and victorious time. When they came back, they were shouting and sharing testimonies. Jesus just said, you just go. And if they don't receive you, just shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town because the next town will. Understand? So Jesus is recalling to their mind that these happier days, these better days of their ministry when he said, you didn't have anything, but, but did you need anything? And, and, and the reason they didn't need anything is that God provided through people. God answered their needs and met all of their needs because people responded, people welcomed them, people allowed them into their homes. Can I pay attention? So Jesus says, now, now, take your money and uh, pack a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Something's about to change. Do you see that? Jesus says, that was then, this is now. It's, it's not going to be like that now. Now, what exactly has changed? Well, bottom line, since Good Friday, suffering for Jesus has been the norm. The disciples don't understand it yet, but Jesus is, is just about within moments here to be arrested. He, he's going to be beaten. He's going to be put on a mock trial. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. And the same crowds that once welcomed him in the good news, the same people that once welcomed the disciples into their home and took care of them, those are the crowds that are going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Everything's about to change. Up to this moment, being associated with Jesus often got you in, 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 into the spotlight with, with, with the glorious crowd that, that were praising Jesus and, and shouting, it's not going to be that way anymore, Jesus says. You can no longer count on a warm reception. You can no longer count on being well-received. It's not going to be that way now. Jesus said, you know, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. If they strike the, the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. It's not going to be easy for you anymore. You know, the, the bottom line is, if we look at this simple sentence, since Good Friday suffering for Jesus' name has been the norm, that's really true for everybody but us. In all places, all through history, to be a Christian often meant to face persecution. I mean, real persecution, not just not being able to say your prayer before a football game. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real persecution. You know, as I stand here today in my fancy yellow sweater preaching to you all in this lovely building, do you understand there are believers around the world who risk their lives just for the simple privilege of doing what we do here today. And for some of you, the service has already gone a little bit too long. You understand? People go to jail to do what we're doing right here in freedom. 
Pastors go to prison to do what I am doing standing here right now, and we're piping it over the internet. Do you understand? It's strange because in the United States, in North America, we've been in this kind of bubble. We've never really faced suffering for Jesus' name. We've grown very, very accustomed to being well-received, more than well-received. We've grown very accustomed to having our prayers be the ones prayed at the ballgame. We become very, very accustomed to having our church services on television. We become very, very accustomed to just having a care night walking out the door, going down the street and going door to door and having people for the most part be polite to us. But I believe that's about to change. I believe it is changing. Are are you paying attention? Are, Are you paying attention to our culture? Because it seems to be changing somewhat rapidly. What used to be a general consensus that we were something like a Christian nation, that's really eroded. There is no longer that assumption whatsoever. As a matter of fact, we're now living in a culture that is increasing in hostility toward us. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm talking way beyond just, you know, the, the, the little things, like I said, where you can't, you can't pray your prayer before a ball game or expect everybody to stand up, you, you know, with you. It, it, way beyond that. I mean, we're way past that now. Are, are you paying attention to this? Do you really think that this, that this season of, of sort of owning the culture, this season of being the dominant voice, did you really think it could last forever? Because Jesus never, ever prepared us for that. He prepared us for this. He prepared us for suffering in his name. He prepared us for taking up our own crosses to follow him. Nobody ever said that, you know, you, you know some people take up a cross, but you'll get to have your own radio show. No, Jesus never prepared his disciples for anything other than suffering after him. We've just never known it. We've never had to follow Jesus when it was hard. We've never had to follow Jesus when it was hard. So in that sense, we're sort of like the disciples that night, clueless about it. You know, for them, it's always been easy. They have no idea what's about to strike. And Jesus has plainly told them, the the devil has a target on on your back. Now, what's going to happen is going to build your faith, but what's going to happen is going to be devastatingly difficult for you. I'm praying for you, Jesus says, that your faith won't fail. It's, It's about your faith. But let's be honest, some of us don't have very strong faith now. Maybe it's because our faith has never been tested, you know? Maybe it's because we've never had to pay any price to follow Jesus. So therefore, we've we've sort of been discount disciples. Since we sort of have sort of come through this at a very, very low personal price, we just sort of assumed that maybe it's not very valuable. Maybe we're about to find out how valuable it is to take the name of Jesus. Maybe it's about to demand some sort of personal price for us. So in the upper room, among the last things Jesus said to his disciples, he, he asked them to rethink their whole mission. Rethink your whole mission in terms of a hostile environment. That was then, Jesus says, when everybody opened their doors for you. Now, you probably ought to take some money and pack a bag. And if you don't have a sword, get one. In other words, they've got to think like missionaries. And you and I have to learn to think like missionaries. 
This world is not our home. And this is not a Christian nation. We can no longer assume that all of our neighbors know Jesus. You cannot assume that your neighbors have even heard Jesus' name. You can't assume that your neighbors speak the same spiritual language that you do. You can't assume that. And you can't assume that people are necessarily going to be tolerant of you and your faith. You, you, You cannot assume that any longer. You can no longer always expect a a welcome reception. You can no longer expect that the culture won't turn against you because they turned against Jesus. It's going to be very, very different for the American church. It's going to be different for Woodburn Baptist Church. Because we don't think like missionaries. We think like church people. We step out into the culture, and we're like, your, your, we're like your grandma who used to go to church, but you didn't go to church. Your grandma, like when you saw her, she'd wag her finger in your face and tell you you need to go to church. That's kind of how we do in our culture. That's what we consider evangelism, just wagging our finger and telling people how they need to do better, how they need to go to church, and how they need to not be gay, you know, just wagging our finger in their face. You know, we've sort of assumed that our job was, was, to, was to correct their behavior. We've always sort of assumed that our job was to go out there and and, and make the culture behave. But honestly, that's not how missionaries do. That's not what missionaries think like. In other words, our our job is not to go out and and police their behavior, to help them find new behavior. Our job is to go out and help them find a new relationship with Jesus. That's what missionaries do. And and we have to go to where the lost people are. We no longer just expect that we'll throw open the door and they'll all come in here and fill up on a Sunday. We've got to rethink our mission because the environment for us is becoming hostile. But Jesus said that it would. He said it would. We're about to find out. So Jesus said that that was then, but, but now take some money and be prepared. Pack a bag and... And, and, and if you have an extra, extra cloak, you probably ought to just sell that and, and buy a sword. Now, Jesus is speaking spiritually. Y- y'all know this, right? He's speaking spiritually. Jesus doesn't really mean go get a sword because he's already said that the enemy is, is whom? It's the devil. It's, it's Satan who's coming after you, you understand? And he's a spiritual enemy. So, you know, whoa, 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 you know, with your sword. It's not going to do any good. Your enemy is not physical. Your enemy is not your neighbors. Your enemy is the devil. Jesus is speaking spiritually, but usually when Jesus speaks spiritually, the disciples never get it because they don't think spiritually. Some of us don't think spiritually either. They've missed the point at every moment of this conversation. When Jesus was talking about his suffering at the Last Supper, remember, they just start talking about what? Who's the greatest? Like, between them, who's the greatest? Can you even imagine that conversation? Can you even imagine having that conversation in front of Jesus? Who's the greatest? Yeah, I think I'm the greatest. You know, what? So at this point, after this long supper of, of, of trying to prepare them for what comes next, and they continually miss the point, Jesus gives this incredible warning about what happens next. What they're going to need to know, how that was then, but, but this is going to be different. It's going to, it's going to be different now. I'm going to die. You, you probably need a sword. He doesn't mean a sword. He means you need to expect opposition, expect confrontation, expect it to be a fight. 
And they look at Jesus and they say, we got two swords. We got two swords. Now notice the scripture. Jesus says that's enough. <laughs> He's not talking by a sword, y'all. Y'all getting this now? It's, we're talking spiritually. Jesus doesn't mean you got two swords. Wow, that's great. Okay, I'd, I'd get like five on one and... It's not about the swords. When Jesus says that's enough, he's not saying, okay, you've got enough swords. No, Jesus is saying enough. I've had enough of this talk. That's what Jesus is saying there, you all. It's, it's not enough swords. It's enough of this. That's enough. He's finished trying to warn them. It's enough. I'm done with this talk. If it was true of Jesus' followers then, then it is true of Jesus' followers now. You should expect it to be a fight. I don't mean that we go out in hostility fighting people. We, we, we go out as an army of love. You understand this. Truly, you must understand this. We go out as an army of love. The hostility comes from the enemy, the devil, and, and those who side with him. It was never supposed to be an easy mission. It's never supposed to be so easy that all you'd ever have to do is sit in a pew and write a check on occasion and send people and come back and hear the stories and see the pictures. That's never what missions was always about. It's about Jesus' followers putting their own necks on the line for the sake of this name. My hunch is Satan has uh, sought permission to, uh, to sift us like wheat. He's going to shake us. He's going to shake our country. He's going to shake this nation. He's going to shake this church. And God will allow it. He'll allow it because that kind of shaking has a tendency to shake away all of that which is not genuine, that which is not strong. When he says he's going to sift you like wheat, remember that farmers would, would, would shake the wheat so that the chaff, so that the trash would fall away and the only thing left would be the kernel, the grain. And that's what is going to happen to us. Our, our lives will be shaken. We'll be put through the fire so that that which is trash in our own lives, that which is not, not eternal, it, it burns away. And the only thing left is the image of Christ in us. That, that, that is what he desires for us. And, and truly, if in your life you just seek happiness and comfort, you're, you're following the wrong Christ. It's not happiness. It's holiness that he wants to create in you. It is faith that must not fail. But honestly, some of us don't follow him very faithfully when it's been easy. What are we going to do when it gets hard? Some of you think you've done something really big by, by, by dragging your sorry behind the church on a Sunday morning, you, you know, after, after watching ball games all night, and, and you think you've done something. Your faith falters when there is no test. Your faith falters when there is no price to pay. But on this night, Jesus tries to prepare his disciples for what comes next, and he tells them it, it is going to get hard. It's going to get dangerous. There's going to be a fight for you. I pray your faith won't fail. So what about you? When the road gets difficult, will your faith fail? 
we may be about to find out. Pray with me. Well, Jesus, we remember all the days in our country when churches would just explode with attenders, Lord. We remember a day when people used to just go to church, whether they believed or not, because they thought it would be good for business. It was good just to be known as a churchgoer. People looked favorably on those who just at least pretended to be Christians. And Lord, when we would kneel to pray in public, Lord, people at least walked politely around us or they would come up and thank us for praying, Lord. There was just this sense that in our country, everybody sort of went along with the church and went along with the gospel. It almost felt like everybody believed. It's changing. It's changing. Lord, we don't exactly know what we will do when it changes. We have, some of us faltered in our faith when it was easy to be your follower. We don't know what we will do when it becomes difficult. Lord Jesus, we just pray that our faith won't fail. We pray that in the coming test of our own lives, Lord, whatever shape the trial will take, Lord, we pray that we will somehow come out stronger that we will love you more dearly and follow you more nearly. Lord Jesus, don't let our faith fail. Well, I pray for the members of this church. Ask you, Lord, to help us to survive the testing, the trials, and come out with our faith, Lord, stronger than ever. Lord, if it is faith that is necessary for knowing you and pleasing you, then, Lord, We'll sacrifice everything else for strong faith. We would leave it all, give it all up, Lord, to strengthen our faith that in the end of this thing, Lord, if we have nothing else, we will have you. Make our lives all about you, Lord Jesus, in whose precious name we pray.